Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 39. Glad you could join us. Today, the cast is joined by my favorite philosopher, Dr. Donald Prudlow. You, the listener, may be able to detect how much we enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Prudlow. I went away feeling uplifted, inspired, and encouraged. I hope the same will be true for you after tuning into this episode. Enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, Colby homeschooling mom, liturgical musician, podcast fanatic, heavy library user, and Colby parent ambassador. I have two lads and two lasses. The youngest is in fifth grade, the eldest is in 10th, and this is our fourth year homeschooling with Colby. And I'm Hope, Bonnie's younger sister and a Colby alumna in a phase of life after being a student, but before becoming a parent. I studied communication theory and philosophy in college, then I went to law school. Now I'm an attorney, an avid home cook, and the fun aunt to Bonnie's kids. And I'm Jordan. After slipping through a thousand cracks, I completed a PhD in history and literature of ancient Christianity at Göttingen University in Germany. Now I teach Greek and Latin at Colby and serve as the Director of Public and Alumni Relations. Today we are joined by Dr. Don Prudlow, the Warren Chair of Catholic Studies at the University of Tulsa. And we are really excited, Bonnie and I are, to listen to Dr. Prudlow and Jordan share their experiences and insights on the current state of higher education, what their interests are, and how classical homeschoolers can be best prepared for college. So welcome, Dr. Prudlow. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Uh, I'm so happy with all the things that Colby's done uh, for my kids and for my wife who teaches at Colby and for all the friends we've gotten from from Colby. So thanks for inviting me. Our pleasure. So I'll turn it over to Jordan here to get it started with the professor chat. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, you may or may not remember we met briefly at the uh, graduation a few years ago. And yes. it was nice, nice talking to you there. I wish we would have had a little more time, um, but we were able to share a little bit about, when I say I studied at Göttingen, very often uh, people don't know even where that is, even people in academia, but you certainly were familiar with it, which made me convinced that you're deep in research. So <laughs> I'm excited to talk to you about that a little bit. Yeah, no, I was uh, I was wondering after you got your doctorate, did you did you kiss the maiden uh, on the square? Did they take you in the wagon and did you kiss the maiden? I wouldn't let them do it. They they wanted to <laughs> to get me to do it so badly, but um, I wouldn't do it. Even my wife, I thought she might be jealous, but she said, "No, you have to do it." And uh, I think I, I don't know if you have a real doctorate then if you haven't kissed the maiden. <laughs> uh, and you should you should tell tell the <laughs> listeners what the tradition is there. Yeah, that that is true. So in Göttingen, when you finish your your PhD, it's it's a tradition that uh, your closest friends and your family walk you into the city square, and they have the Gonzalezel, it's called, which is the the goose girl, and um, you're supposed to climb up. It's it's over a fountain. You're supposed to climb up, bring her some flowers, and give her a kiss. And uh, it's been a tradition since who knows when. I I, I don't know when the Gonzalezo got put up there. But I also I was a little bit worried. It's a lot higher. It's a lot more dangerous of a climb when you're right up next to her than you might think. So. <laughs> It's it, it's those kind of traditions though that that make college and university life uh, fun and distinct in in different places. I, I remember uh, graduation day at the University of Uppsala, 
uh, in Sweden, and they would they had this uh, tradition of floss, uh, which is, I think is the same in German of rafting. Uh, they make uh, extremely poorly constructed styrofoam rafts, and uh, they imbibe a little bit, uh, and they sail down the river in the middle of the town while uh, all of their friends on the on the sides of the river throw uh, various things at them. Uh, and so those those are some of those great traditions that uh, that arise in college life. Definitely. Yeah, I, I love those. And, and, and Gertgen has quite a few as well. It was neat to experience those when I was over there and kind of learned the traditions in the university, like kind of the sister schools, Tübingen and Heidelberg and some of those as well. Um, and I, I, I think it's interesting in looking at your profile on your faculty page, you've gone so you made it you made to, to me it looks like you made a kind of a transition at some point in your in your studies so you you started in in Christendom and I think you went to Christendom School of Theology Notre Dame mm-hmm. and um then after that can you talk about I guess how how did that prepare you for what you ended up doing for your doctorate and uh and, and I guess you went to Virginia which is at least in in our field, that's that's a very very reputable school. Um, how was there a transition in there to where you got more, I guess, directed towards research, or or if you could just talk a little bit about that, that would be great. Yeah, it's a reputable school that lets disreputable people in, obviously. So uh, I went to Virginia. I had I had a professor at Christendom that had gone to Virginia. And he introduced me to several professors there. And that's, if anyone is considering graduate school, that's one of the first things I would say. You go to study with with people, not with you just for subjects. And so you wanna make sure to make personal contacts. You wanna go to study with someone. Uh, and that's, that's what I did. I always, it, it's kind of weird. I always wanted to be a professor uh, and that was uh, highly unrealistic. It's, I've been extremely blessed and lucky to, to be where I am. But I, I knew I wanted to go to a research intensive place uh, to study history, philosophy, theology all together, uh, sort of in an interdisciplinary way. And so I chose the University of Virginia, uh, where I had uh, Dr. Robert Wilkin, who was on the board of the uh, uh, First Things, who's a patristic scholar. Uh, I studied with him. Uh, and there were also two Catholic priests on the staff at, at uh Thomas Jefferson's University, which was uh, strange. One was a Dominican who was my director and one was a a Jesuit who did American Catholic history. And so even though I went to really one of the first secular universities in in the world, it was, I had a very thorough Catholic education there, very, very uh, solid formation and ability to study uh, Catholic things. So I was very, very lucky to have that. That sounds a little bit like the John Senior program at the University of Kansas, where it was a program within a secular university that has a lot of Catholic thought and teaching. And that always intrigues me. I think a lot of people do end up looking at secular schools, whether it's for financial reasons or even just the types of things that they want to study. There's really a lot of good parts of many universities. Some are, are non-Catholic, some are some are secular. Uh, particularly at University of Tulsa, we have an honors program where we have spent four semesters studying the great works and the great texts, and that's been a real blessing to teach in that. But other places that you wouldn't expect, like Baylor. Uh, Baylor, uh, which is a Baptist university, has a number of really good Catholic professors, and their honors program is also fantastic. So you can you can find these things in uh, even outside the Catholic uh, world. 
that's definitely been my experience and um i because i i'm I'm a convert i converted during graduate school and i was kind of i was kind of uh i guess i was led that way by by non-catholic universities by secular universities Göttingen is protestant but it's uh it's pretty much secular it's funny you mentioned that with baylor the chaplain that's here at Magdalen is uh, he he studied at Baylor and uh, he's he has a lot of good things to say about it as well and some interesting things like for example David Koresh was also in the graduate program with him <laughs> at the same at the same time so it's uh, he's got some he's definitely got some stories but um yeah I wanted to talk to you a bit about this idea with research and why. I mean, is it your experience that that it's that it is not encouraged as much in, say, the Cardinal Newman type schools? And if that's true, um, why why would that be? One of the the main things and the main important things, one of the reasons why I chose a Cardinal Newman school is because of their focus on on teaching. Uh, these the professors there, like it, like you, are so dedicated to their students, and uh, these these schools are often recently founded, and they don't have large endowments, and they are are founded for teaching the liberal arts to to college students, and we're so lucky to have these institutions, uh, and that's why uh, I thought as an undergraduate the best place to go, the best education to get is is at one of those Cardinal Newman type small Catholic schools. Uh, and then to go do, if you want to do further research, then you go to a large research one university. Uh, and uh, once you've been formed in, in the faith, once you've been formed in the faith, you start to, you're supposed to go out and you're supposed to engage with these ideas. And one of the reasons I was attracted to research is that, is that there's so much misinformation. There's so many bad uh, scholarly trends that have happened over the last 200 years or so that it really needed a Catholic study that really needed people with uh, who are you know versed in Catholicism to go into nearly every academic field and to sort of reclaim that territory, which was originally the church's territory, uh, since it the church uh, the university founded out of the heart of the church, as the title of the uh, of John Paul II's document Ex Cordia Ecclesiae says. So that uh, so it's important for for Catholics to to get that kind of formation at places like that. Uh, the small liberal arts colleges, and then to go out and uh, and engage the broader culture. That's excellent. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. It is it's very teacher and student centered in these kind of colleges, like like where I am. I I think that would be great when you're when you're younger and getting getting students excited for research. I guess is is part of yeah. part of the part of the challenge because because uh, like in my position I, I teach so much it's I have some projects that I that I claim are mine but when can I ever get to them I'm, I'm trying to get to them um, but I noticed in on your profile you have quite a few research projects ongoing projects and and ideas that you're working towards and um, I just I wondered if you might talk about what what you're most excited about what are you working on at the moment I'm working with a group that's studying uh, holiness and administration in church history, and we're looking at how to how to how to integrate Christian virtue into leadership. And we've been doing sort of case studies of saints throughout the history of the church who really did astonishing work in organizing and in innovating, uh, streamlining administration and uh, and governing the people of God. So I've I've been excited about that. But I'm also 
uh, I love paleography. And you, you kind of mentioned uh, paleography is the study of ancient um, and medieval texts, manuscripts and, and things like that. And uh, you mentioned, you know, it's, it's tough to get to your own research. I remember I had a professor at Christendom uh, that was also interested in paleography uh, for their research. And so we did a, a directed study together. And I did, uh, you know, I, and I was introduced to, to manuscript study uh, at, you know, undergrad at a liberal arts college. And that's, that's one of the ways that you can sort of begin to, to integrate, you know, research students that might be interested in further study, doing some directed study with them that dovetails with your own work. Uh, that's, that's, that's always a way to sort of make time for, for some of your own projects. But I am uh, finishing up a book on the history of the early Dominican order. I've been very Dominican centric. Uh, I, I really vibe with their with their theology and with their uh, spirituality. So I've been uh, I've done the, a book on Peter Verona and Thomas Aquinas recently, and uh, now I want to give the whole picture of why the Dominicans were central to the church in the 13th and 14th centuries. Yeah, that that sounds really great. Um, what what was it, or maybe who was it that that brought you into a love and a knowledge of research and what what needs to be done because i mean you mentioned and i think this is super advice that a lot of people miss is that you go to study with people especially in grad school i mean that's what that's the german way <clears throat> you don't apply i didn't apply to any programs or anything it was a professor uh that that i had a connection with asked me if i if i wanted to write my dissertation with him i said yes of course and then it's just filling out paperwork but it's already done you're, you're it's not that you apply and you get accepted into a program was there a specific professor or maybe a moment where where you really got excited about what you were going to do i guess over the next years well one of the things about christendom where i went was it, it is great books focused but it's also uh, focuses on history and the study of history as well. And I had several really exceptional history professors that, uh, in a certain sense, helped to give me the background and content uh, to excel in great books classes. Uh, we often sort of throw the great books at students and, and sort of expect them to just, you know, get in the deep end of the great conversation. And we don't give them any sort of guidance and formation to to help them on that on that journey towards being being a learned reader of texts. And so these professors, you know, pointed me and said that that through history, we can begin to integrate all these great ideas. We can study philosophy, we can study theology, we can study literature, and it all comes together, particularly in the context of the this incarnational church that we have, this embedded church uh, that is, you know, exists in the world and, and embedded in contexts and, and, and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I would I would say that, and particularly for Colby students, when you're preparing for college and when you're when you're in college, Talk to professors. Uh, it's it's uh, we actually do like students, and we are the most impressed we are is when a, is when a student will just drop by the office and start to talk about things that that interest them, uh, and or if they want to come talk about their paper, a topic that interested them in class. Uh, I guarantee that will make an impression on your professors. Uh, so uh, and that's where those kind of conversations about research and further study can really get off the ground. Uh, it's sometimes outside of the classroom that that can happen. It sounds like office hours are really an area to foster the relationships and the knowledge and the skills for the future. Oh, definitely. That's 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 where you want to go. And, and not only that, but 
we have, uh, and, and many secular places will have this, and we can talk about this more if you want, but uh, we have a great Newman Center at TU. Even though TU is not a Catholic university, many universities uh, have great Newman Centers. Not all universities, but many universities have great Newman Centers. And I have reading groups there, uh, and in the evening we'll have, you know, we'll have, uh, you know, some some refreshments and cheese. And, and last semester we talked about Cardinal Newman's idea of a university, and we get to know students there. Uh, and uh, I've had students who go on to the seminary, who go on to higher study or to get married and have a job and they remember these they sort of keep these things uh in their in their hearts and that's that's been really important for me so yeah getting to know people uh using these opportunities um you know when you go to a place like i wouldn't want have wanted to go to virginia as an undergrad or to a place uh, to an ivy league school because you will get absolutely lost in the shuffle there uh, you might find a good a small Catholic community, but in terms of academics, some of the best universities are the worst places to get undergraduate educations. You're going to be in 300-person classes taught by uh, teaching assistants uh, and a professor you will never have the opportunity to know personally, which is one of the great advantages of these small Catholic liberal arts colleges and uh, a college, a small liberal arts college like even like University of Tulsa. Uh, that I can get to know. I know I get to know all my students face to face on a first name basis. We don't have teaching assistants. It's uh, it, it's a great place. So I would really focus on on places like that for an undergraduate degree. Now you're going to want to go to a, a, a top level research university if you're going to do graduate study or professional study. But but other than that, for undergraduate, um, I think the small smaller colleges are, are better. I went to a large. A public university, but I was really fortunate to find a Catholic Student Association. It wasn't called the Newman Center at the time. I think it is now, but it at the time it was the Catholic Student Association, and it was a much smaller group. And I found a number of really good friends, and I was really fortunate to be able to play there that whole time, which sort of gave me an instant entree into that community in a way, for which I'm really thankful. So that is something that I can speak to as one who went to a large university, but sought out that Catholic community that was really helpful to me in my time there. It's, I like Yeah, you can you... do a large university. Yeah, if, if you find those small communities, those, those good solid communities, you can do a large university. Hearing you mention the idea of office hours and students approaching professors to cultivate relationships with them outside of class sounds like a really good suggestion. We've heard that from Dr. Esselin as well, how he can tell when students approach him sort of in a general way, what their backgrounds might be, more or less, and how that can be an indicator of success for them as people, whole people in the road ahead for them. Are there other things you have found that are markers of future success for students? Definitely. The, and it's the things that, that Colby teaches. Uh, that when I have a student that can write and can think and can speak for themselves, I can tell what their formation has been when they have uh, when they have good writing skills, when they're able to communicate their ideas, when they are uh, when they're polite and when they're courteous. So we we underestimate these things, but it's it's not innate. Uh, these have to be learned behaviors. And when you have a courteous student or you have a kind student, I mean these are. Uh, it, I think indicators of of deeper ability and uh, particularly necessary virtues in the academic world as well. 
But, you know, when they're engaged uh, with readings, when they're able to look at a text and they're able to analyze it, and they can speak across generations, too. This is another thing that I notice with a lot of public school kids. They may be able to interact with their peer group, but, you know, across classes or to adults or professors, that's that's a key skill. Uh, you, you need to be, and, and I've always found that homeschool students are able to talk across uh, generations, which is a great and very important skill. When I was in grad school, when I was transitioning uh, in grad school and when I was becoming uh, Catholic, I was on I was on the road. I was reading John Henry Newman quite a bit. And uh, he has um, a, a famous quote where he says to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And so he doesn't he doesn't say it's to become Catholic, but it's to cease at least to be Protestant. Um, a lot of things crystallized for me at, during that time. It's almost like I, I was able to define even my my approach to how I read texts um, to how I to how I analyze history and and sort of synthesize all this information and you you teach a really broad range of, of things and one of them that struck me was um, this history of world religions also which is it's not unexpected I mean going to Virginia their their religious studies they, all of that um, did you encounter just I, I just I'm curious, did you did you come across the history of religion school from Göttingen in, in that? And then also what what was it that could you could you describe, I guess, what's distinctive about the Catholic Church when you compare religions or when you look at their histories? I really enjoy the world religions class. And I'm teaching this semester introduction to, to Islam, which is also very interesting. And all of this goes back to to Thomas. I mean, because Thomas would constantly be in dialogue with thinkers from other religions and from other cultures. And that's simply a Catholic fact of the incarnation. Because of the incarnation, we have to take thinkers from other cultures seriously. And yes, the the Göttingen school was was very strong. Uh, they were some of the first original writers in what became the history of religions or comparative religions, as it used to be called. And uh, you have to, and it's important for students. And so many students that I come, the, I come from there. They're they're not uh, just you know fallen away Catholics or fallen away Protestants. These are people that have been raised with absolutely no exposure to religion whatsoever, and taking them through these different things shows them how profoundly human religion is. What a natural human reaction, religiosity and ritual can be, and that helps to lead them through uh, into a deeper understanding of their own humanity uh, and sometimes turns a couple of them onto uh, onto religion, onto Christianity and Catholicism. So I really enjoy teaching those classes. It, uh, it helps us to understand uh, those who live differently from us, those who follow religions that are uh, uh, that are false from the Catholic perspective so that we can understand, first of all, what they do, why they do it, and only then to analyze why they might be right or wrong. Uh, because you've got to, I've always thought you've got to understand somebody before you, uh, before you begin to contradict them. This is, this is Thomas's own method in the Summa, right? Uh, with exquisite courtesy, he always lets his opponents speak first, and he lets them present their best arguments before he even opens his mouth for his own position. And so, when we when we study the, the thing that's that struck me from I guess comparing even though comparative religion is not really a current in academic speak is is the incarnation is Catholics incredible attention to the goodness of the natural and material world and the potential for the material world human bodies 
to be communicators of grace. Uh, that's just different from every other world religion, uh, uh, particularly Eastern religions, which are so anti-material and anti-body. Uh, the Christian religion, the Catholic religion is so life-affirming and, uh, and so affirming of a complete and integrated human nature that it, it just, it clicks, that, that natural religion clicks with Catholicism the best. One of my favorite stories is about Victor and Edith Turner, who taught at the University of Virginia. They were anthropologists. They were uh, Marxist pacifists, uh, atheists in World War II. And they didn't want to, they were, they were conscientious objectors in England in World War II. And they were anthropologists at Cambridge. So in order to get away from the war, they undertook their research in Africa in uh, a almost uncontacted tribe. And so here, and, and they, they had a child and, and raised a child. I know, I know their child. He teaches Shakespeare now at the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, wonderful guy. But uh, he was born in the African bush. And Edith Turner, who were Marxist, atheists, uh, anthropologists, through their study of native African pagan religions, converted themselves to Catholicism in the middle of Africa with no teachers because of the, the sacramentality that they witnessed through these primitive religions. Uh, and I've always been very struck by that. And that's one of the reasons why I, I do world religions and why I do uh, Introduction to Islam. It's so important for students to have these kind of perspectives. That, that's really amazing. I've, I've read, we've read Victor Turner quite a bit. Um, my, my master's is in religious studies. And so we approached a few of his texts. And I, I remember, surprisingly one of the classes because I, I don't fancy myself a philosopher at all but one of the classes was medieval philosophy that i took and to see the dialogue with maimonides and Averroes and and to see that whole time period when thomas was was active it was it made a big impression on me i wasn't i wasn't catholic but i just thought i cannot believe we don't know these things and these people knew these things you know and and we have not we have we haven't progressed in this way. Maybe I have a computer, but uh, <laughs> I couldn't do this. But one of the so I was I I was one of those students that that maybe um, in in your field that you're you're reaching that comes to you that's searching and and is wondering about these things. Um, I I know for me Rene Girard was was really important to me. Um, he he was different in kind than all the others. Different in kind and not degree. So that's the hard part about Girard is you you've got you have to swallow the whole pill, or not use it at all. Basically, <laughs> yeah. Yes, done. I agree. I, I've long I've long <laughs> since done. <laughs> I took the red pill from Girard. But um, but with in saying all that, I I mean, do you, how do you see yourself? I guess your your role there what your role in in such an institution and teaching the sorts of classes you have the opportunity to teach um what 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 do you see as far as just on a human level reaching other people in in that capacity what i really want to to introduce people to is the the faith and reason tradition of the catholic church uh that they both go together not only go together but are complementary and necessary for one another and so we have this great Newman Center that serves the spiritual needs of the students. And so I see myself as sort of the intellectual side of the of the equation. So the students can learn about the truths of the faith, and then they can go to the Newman Center and they can have adoration, they can worship, uh, and do the things that they that they need to have there. So it's so it's a it's it's an integrative 
experience uh, for the university to have that. But uh, I've also noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed this in recent years, that it's not so much the faith that we're defending uh, at the at the university level now. We're trying to defend reason itself, because reason is under attack uh, in in the university. Uh, everything becomes about becomes about power relations uh, and uh, exerting power of one group over another. Uh, so much so that it becomes difficult to even have a dialogue with people uh, that disagree with you. And this was this was exactly the point that was so misunderstood by Pope Benedict's Regensburg lecture, uh, was that we can have the kind of dialogue with Islam that Thomas had with Averroes in the, in the, tw- in the 13th century, um, but not until the Islamic world recaptures that tradition of rationality, uh, which in many instances uh, they've lost. Once we have that, once we have that basis of common humanity, then we can have that kind of dialogue again. Uh, And I think the reactions to Benedict's speech uh, really proved his point in a certain way uh, about what he was saying. I've heard two different things. I've heard that that Islam looks, it looks like it's from the century that it came from. And I know it's, it's just grouping it together as though it's all just one thing. And then I heard an interesting um, an interesting theory, I think from Pierre Manet, who said uh, that he, he hinted at the fact that maybe Islam is ahead. So they, they, they went to like a peak and, and this reversion maybe back into looking like they're from a, a prior century. They're, they're ahead of us in that way, like that maybe also Christendom is going to revert back to something like that. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, that that question, but I guess it's it's the idea is um, what the way it was presented to me in grad school was that Islam looks more like like it's from the century it came out of still, whereas Christianity has moved and moved and moved and, and keeps developing. And that's what's created this this gap. I don't I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Well, that's I mean, one of the things is that Islam has never had to go through the crucible of a reformation or an enlightenment. Uh, and so is going to look very different uh, from what happens in, in the West. Uh, not and, and many things that happened in the Reformation, the Enlightenment were, were bad, but all of them served to refine what the Catholics uh, believed and taught and thought and, and prayed uh, the way they prayed. One of the issues with Islam is that it was ahead of Christendom. It was ahead by several centuries. They had all of the Greek philosophy, they had peace, they had order. They were advancing uh, in terms of their jurisprudence, their theology, their philosophy. Uh, and then questions of faith and reason began to to affect them very strongly. Uh, questions that, uh, well, it's it appears that science or that reason seems to contradict what's in our holy texts. And the Islamic Golden Age fell apart because of that. Uh, the conflict between faith and reason could not be settled in Islam. Uh, and so ironically, the great inheritor of the Islamic Golden Age is the Christian Middle Ages. Uh, many, most Islamic school children have no idea who Avicenna or Averroes uh, are. Uh, and they become the treasures of uh, the scholastic movement and Western philosophy. Christianity in the Middle Ages ran into that same problem with faith and reason, but knew that it had to hold those both together because of the incarnation, uh, that God had created a book of supernatural revelation uh, in the Bible and in the tradition of the church, and he'd also given us a book of natural revelation in the world. And because they both had the same source, 
which was God, in the same destination, which was truth, they could never truly contradict. And so, even though it's difficult sometimes, the Middle Ages held, held faith and reason together. That's why the scientific revolution was born in Christendom uh, and not elsewhere in the world. Uh, and it's why the church patronized universities and was on the forefront of science and philosophy and theology from the very beginning. Um, and so uh, that's those are the kind of stories that need to be retold and emphasized, I think. Oh, oh I totally agree. I totally agree. And that that part with, with Islam, um, yeah, well, I, I want to see if we step back then prior to the the incarnation as well. I, I, I get the sense quite often with my students, well, I guess it's in, in presenting material from, from the classical period of Greco-Roman society, that the, the distinction between that and Christendom is, is, is not very well understood. It's, it's as though we've synthesized much of the philosophy that came out of the Greco-Roman period with Christendom, which which is is a fact. However, you, you read Cicero and and you're amazed that he that part of his accusations are that Catiline, for example, is aligning himself with slaves in the lower classes of society. Whereas you know now that that's what a politician runs, they say I'm I'm for the lower classes of society. What whatever. So there's this huge shift in there. And um, do you do you think that, I guess, I guess this is a newer thought to me, um, just more recently, seeing this distinction be pre-incarnation and post-incarnation, should that be emphasized as well, the, the difference between those two, two periods? I don't want to, I don't want to emphasize the difference too much. I think that, that a lot of people, uh, particularly in some quarters, Political theory, especially, tried to make a divorce between the Greco-Roman world and the Christian world, uh, and this is also a, a Protestant uh, position that I've I've struggled against very strongly. I think Christianity is essentially uh, Greco-Roman as it is essentially Hebraic. Uh, that those are the three pillars of of Christian civilization. If you kick one of them out, you're not going to have a Christian civilization. Uh, God intended the incarnation to happen in uh, a Roman political order, in a Greek-speaking and thinking world, uh, and in a Hebraic religion. Uh, and so we can't just simply dismiss those as accidental cultures uh, to who we are. Uh, and all of those cultures were pointing in their own way to the incarnation. And so I don't want to I don't want to stress the the disjunctive elements. Um, you know, as Thomas says, the the very wise can reach the truth. Uh, after a long period of time and with some admixture of error. And so there's always going to be, uh, when you don't have the fullness of the faith, some sorts of uh, deficiencies. Uh, I, don't, I don't happen to think Cicero had many deficiencies, but uh, that, that may have been uh, one of them. Uh, he also uh, was convinced of the, of the Stoic position of the, of the intrinsic equality, if not the practical equality, of all humans. Uh, and so, you know, I think we can point, I, I think we can point to those things. And when people today point to Aristotle and Plato's, you know, dislike for, for the common man, uh, you know, you just point them out that it was democracy that killed Socrates. I mean, so, uh, and I think what these allow us to do is have students think critically about these, these things that we, that we take for granted. Uh, and so uh, presenting them once again in historical context, and from a Catholic school's perspective, like Colby does so well, uh, pointing to the incarnation. Uh, because for, for Catholics, the Catholic view of history is to see Christian, to see the incarnation uh, as the hub of history, right? And everything is rotating around that hub of history. 
Uh, and uh, so that the way that, that Augustine speaks about eternity in Boethius as God seeing history as a simultaneous unity, and the incarnation is at the epicenter of that history. So that in a certain sense, uh, you could say that we're all made in the image and likeness of Christ uh, because of, from God's perspective of the incarnation. This is all fascinating, and you lost me long ago, but it's it's worth it. <laughs> I have a couple of questions. First, I'm really intrigued. I had not heard of Victor or Edith Turner, and I'm sure we'll have listeners who are intrigued by their conversion story. So if there are any resources that may share some of that, if you could send them to us, and we'll put them in the show notes in case people are interested. Sure. And then I'm also curious, especially building on how beautifully you describe this idea of faith and reason and the different responses to perceived tensions and different things like that. And I'm not doing it justice at all, but I wondered if you might speak a little bit about what you're seeing in, in college students right now, both homeschooled and not homeschooled as far as reason versus feelings versus there's a lot of discussion in the Catholic sphere about relativism. And then there's also some discussion about, I've seen it called positivism. Um, I don't know that that's actually technically correct, but the idea that you can basically make truth by shouting the loudest, by positing something. And so I'm curious if you could speak about kind of what you're seeing in the classroom with the students that you teach right now um, and who recent or upcoming Colby graduates will be in class with. I've been uh, impressed in the last couple of years by, I guess it's called Gen Z uh, now. Uh, th there was a very different issue with millennials uh, about 10 years ago uh, that, that that seems to be lessening. And I credit it because they the Gen Z's parents are Gen X uh, and they're way cool. Uh, so uh, the Gen Zers have been, uh, have been more willing to engage in discussion. And even though they're constantly surrounded by a society that tells them to prioritize their feelings and to prioritize questions of power or marginalization, when you get them in a class and you give them a text and you ask them to define or discuss or debate, they're actually doing it in a way that the millennials just simply seem to not be able to. Uh, you know, I, I saw the millennial generation as, as those who... Um, sort of everybody got a participation trophy, everybody won, and they were very sensitive, almost oversensitive. And Gen Z seems to have a little bit of a thicker skin. So I've I've been impressed at that. I mean, uh, we've had, you know, short-term issues with coronavirus. Uh, it's been very difficult uh, to, um, one of my favorite things, I know Colby does this so well, but the rest of us had to sort of jump in on it in, at the last minute, this online teaching uh, and things like that. And uh, and I, I'm, I, for one, am very eager to get back uh, in the classroom to have these kind of discussions. The face-to-face -face interaction uh, with students is so valuable and seeing their, uh, so many times I'll, I'll have a discussion in class and all the students will have their cameras off. Uh, and, you know, you can't time things, you can't see see what's going on. And uh, and I also ban electronic devices in my class, uh, not just phones, but you can't take notes on a computer because there's an, any number of studies that demonstrate how much better retention is when it's handwritten. Uh, the students are so proficient with typing that it just goes in one ear and out the other right onto the, the screen. And so forcing them to write, uh, and I know I have terrible handwriting, and for my sins, I spend my life reading other people's handwriting from 700 years ago. Uh, but uh, so that that hand uh, writing, that that intentionality, that face to face, that personal uh, is important. Um, 
we have a lot of challenges from outside the classroom uh, by people, uh, and this is a problem on both right and left, uh, who valorize professionalization over the over formation. Uh, they would rather they want to care, and, and I characterize this by the usual question that students get asked by almost everyone. Uh, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, what are you going to do with that degree? Uh, and I tell them the question of what to do is an important one, but I'm more interested in the question of who are you going to be? Uh, what to be your uh, your contribution as a citizen and as a person and as a husband, wife, father, mother uh, to society? Uh, and that's that's the key question. And because that uh, I can't put an immediate quantifiable monetary value on that, that's not uh, doesn't seem very valuable to administrations and boards uh, in, in the present time. And so everything becomes about practicality. Everything becomes about quantity, quantity, and um, and that's that's been really unfortunate. That's a, a big struggle we're having in higher education right now, and trying to turn people away from this focus on power relations, as if all of uh, our activity was directed toward the acquisition of power and exerting it over others, uh, which has become in our postmodern, post-Nietzsche world sort of the normative way of understanding the way that, that people interact, turning them away from that, showing them the arguments of Plato and Aristotle and Cicero that power can't be the good we're looking for because it's only ever a means to an end. You have to specify what the end of power is going to be for it to be judged as, as, as a good. And so turning them to the true and the good and the beautiful and away from these, these power relations. You know, trying to get when when you're when you're down to the the argument that we can't teach Aristotle because Aristotle was white, then the then the the universe has contracted to such an astonishing degree that it's it's become uh, uh, that that has become a, a harder and harder thing to to do uh, in recent years. But it's not the students' fault. That's that's not that's not from them. That certainly seems to be one challenge facing the students you have now and those who are following behind them, what other future challenges do you see for them? Uh, it, that's probably uh, well, pretty broad, but. It's, that, is a, that is a very broad question. I mean, I, I, we've got to form people that, that can think and speak and write for themselves, which is the whole core of liberal arts education. Because if they can't do that, they're going to be uh, swayed this and that way by, by fake news, by prejudice, by superstition, by any number of, uh, of really terrible things that, we are, that we're seeing. Uh, the sort of educational crisis of the last 50 years really coming home to roost in, in recent, recent years. Uh, and so we have to remain committed to that, to that formation of the human person and that educar, the drawing out uh, of, the, of the person and not just training. Um, uh, you, you may be the most you know, brilliant engineer that's ever lived, but if you can't hold a conversation, if you can't articulate an opinion, if you can't discuss with me what's true or what's good or what's beautiful, then uh, are you living a, a human life? I just wanted to, I wanted to agree with you about this Generation Z. Uh, it's, it's been fun getting to know them. And those of us from Generation X, it's as though we were, uh, we're always told we're too young for for the responsible jobs you know and now now they're trying to flip it where we're too old and the the millennials <laughs> should get them but um i i've really noticed i've noticed a change with generation z and it's encouraging and in all of this i i feel encouraged i think there there are some scary things so we have to stay vi vigilant but what's going on with colby even uh, what I'm seeing with the college students, I, I feel hopeful. I feel hopeful for the future. And I wondered, I'm sure you're familiar with um, 
blooms uh the western canon and some of those arguments and you kind of touched on that i think that's going to be a big uh struggle going forward I have the question, what determines the canon? And I think that's the whole issue still is, is who's, is it politics now? Is that what's taking over? But what can we do to preserve, to try to preserve that heritage? We have to focus on, on things that are, uh, that are true and good and introduce students to these things and say that this is, this is independent of those. Uh, and I found it a, a useful way, actually, in previous years it was useful. This has become just about this year not as useful. But I point to Frederick Douglass and W.B. Dubois and, and Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And I said, look at Martin Luther King. He's quoting Augustine and Aquinas and Aristotle from memory on the back of a napkin uh, in order to argue against the injustice of segregation laws. If you don't have a liberal education, you can't do that. It didn't matter that Aquinas and Aristotle were white. What it matters what is, did they have true arguments? Uh, and we can read books from other uh, cultures because we're looking for truth. We're not trying to deter. We're not trying to impose uh, our view of reality on things. What we need to do is to discover what reality is. Uh, and uh, if if you want to defend things like the scientific method, like empiricism, like feminism, uh, which is directly opposed to relativism, uh, you've got to choose. I tell my student, uh, my my radical feminist students, you've got to either choose relativism or feminism. You can't be both. Uh, feminism is a statement that there's a certain uh, way that women should be treated that is objectively better than the other ways. And so you're going to have to affirm that. And once you get them thinking in those logical ways, I think logic, we still have Dr. Fudge at Tulsa still teaches a logic class. If, if everyone would just take a logic class, uh, this would, uh, but but when mathematics and, and logic uh, become seen as ways to oppress people, uh, we're we're past the point of discussion on that. I can't rationally, uh, you know, if, if math is something that oppresses people, uh, I can't. Uh, like I said, we're 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 post Regensburg at that moment. Then we're just going to have to riot uh, if that's if that's the issue. This has all been really fascinating. I don't have much to contribute. I'm just take sitting here taking it all in. It's really been just so much to think about. Really appreciate all of this you've offered to us for pondering. And listening to again and again to to glean more from it each time. I know I will. We'd like to. This is such a great thing that you do. I'm I'm so happy you've been getting really really cool people in to talk, uh, and you even let me come and talk, which was which was really cool. Uh, but uh, thank you for doing this. This is I know it's an investment of time, and uh, thank you for Colby and everything. It's it's just fantastic. Well, we've been eager to talk to you, and now that you're with all your comments about Gen X, I'm like, oh yes, let's keep talking. Keep on talking about Gen X. <laughs> That's me too. Well, uh, fine, they can write us Bonnie. off. We just invented everything anyway. Just, uh, we, we, just we went home, you know, we let ourselves in at home and we, we made ourselves dinner and invented everything. <laughs> Bonnie's Gen X and I'm a millennial and I started college okay. 10 years ago this year. So I'm like, oh boy, this explains yeah, but a lot. You're a, younger, you're a younger sister. And so you, that, that good Gen X stuff rubbed off on you. You didn't have that, uh, right. uh, like the single child problem yeah. from the millennial issue. That's a real, real problem. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. The Gen X coolness and also all of her new kids on the block CDs. I inherited those too. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. I thought we were talking about wow. the good and the beautiful. <laughs> you just took a sharp turn. <laughs> okay, on that note. <laughs> we had been eager to hear from you on these topics. 
We also know you have a wealth of knowledge as a dad and as a professor that might be also very helpful in another way to Colby families. So on our next episode, we'd like to visit with you about things pertaining to college visits, both from the dad side and from the professor side. So with that in mind, we we thank you for joining us this week, Dr. Prudlow, and we look forward to visiting with you again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam. Thank you.